This show is made possible by our Patreon supporters. To get access to our exclusive content and support the show, visit www.patreon.com forward slash EABB podcast. That's www.patreon.com forward slash EABB podcast. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Triano, joined always by Stephen Canistracy. Hello. This is episode 50, and today we're speaking with Dr. Gordon Buddy Cook. Buddy is a recently published author. He just published the anthology of Bugle Music, and he is also an associate professor at the West Point Military Academy. This is an awesome episode where we're talking about the Bugle in the United States and the field music associated with it, so we hope you enjoy this episode. Yeah, it was great to, to talk to Buddy and, and uh, talk about uh, the Bugle in the United States and in the military and, and his book, which is um, an anthology of, of Bugle music. So it's a great, fairly thick uh, reference book all about the Bugle. Uh, but it was, uh, like we said, great to talk to Buddy about um, his recent research and, and efforts putting this book together. If you like what you're hearing, you can follow us on all social media platforms. I can subscribe to our YouTube, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, we also have a Patreon page and a Teespring store if you'd like to support the show that way. And as always, our website, eabbpodcast.com, has a bunch of resources and show notes for every episode where you can find links to um, Buddy's website and also where you can find his book if you're interested. So uh, with all that, uh, we can just get right into the interview. And the views of the speaker are their own and do not reflect the official position of the U.S. Military Academy, the Army, or the Department of Defense. All right. Well, buddy, thanks so much for coming on to the show today. We're really excited to, to have you on talk about some bugling today. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing great. It's uh, great to be here with you. Love the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank thanks. You. Yeah. Always, always great to have a listener on too. Um, <laughs> so um, maybe, maybe to start, um, uh, obviously we're, we're going to, we're going to talk about uh, your book today and a lot of the research that, that went into that. Um, but could you give us um, maybe a, a brief overview of kind of your musical background and how that brought you to become, you know, interested in field music and bugling and, and that whole world. Sure. So um, <clears throat> I, I started out on trumpet in elementary school. And, uh, you know, once I kind of got picked that that was the instrument I was doing that summer before uh, we actually started in school band, um, you know, my, my cub master, Mr. Richards gave me, uh, he was a, an army bandsman. And he loaned uh, me a bugle and a pocket trumpet and kind of taught me how to how to blow some things. I spent the whole summer running around in the backyard um, blowing this bugle. <laughs> so it really kind of was my first instrument. Um, and then, you know, started in on trumpet in, in school band. Um, and, and pretty much right away, my, my parents uh, took me and my brother down to our uh, local drum and bugle corps, the Mid-Hudson Rivermen. And so... Um, you know, we, we started with that and we're marching on the, the two valved uh, piston rotor bugles um, back then as a street core doing lots of parades, um, you know, just an extra place to play. Had a lot of fun with that. I uh, got to go to DCI uh, the summer uh, after sixth grade. 
Um, so we were, we were kind of young. My brother might be the youngest person to ever march on the DCI, uh, <laughs> field. Wow. Um, it was in Buffalo that year and, uh, it was, it was more, it was, it was a local thing. Uh, cause it, it was in our state. It was in Buffalo. Uh, we were in New York and, um, our, our core got together with, uh, three other cores in the, in the area, um, kind of the greater New York area and formed an all-star core. Huh. Um, so you know, we went, competed in the A60 class, uh, finished um, dead last. <laughs> but it was it was a great experience for all of us. We really loved it. Um, that was a good time. Um, you know, I did the the bugle thing. I was, you know, for my my Boy Scout troop, <clears throat> and um, you know, really between like Scouts, drum corps, school marching band. Uh, you know, I was playing taps at Memorial Days and Veterans Day, pretty pretty much almost every time, probably. Um, which got interesting later when, uh, you know, I came back as an adult and, um, you know, I said to the, you know, one of, one of the old, you know, World War II vets uh, made just a joke about, yeah, but I, I played bugle here for like every year for almost a decade straight. They said, no, 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 that's not right. Like, cause one year it'd be like a boy scout. One year it'd be somebody from the band. One year it was from the drum corps. I was like, yeah. And they were all me. <laughs> just never put it together. Um, but then, uh, you know, so I, I went to West point for, um, for college and uh when i was there we had a cadet field music group um so that was uh, all just um you know we played on trumpets uh it was trumpets and drums um but you know we worked with the hellcats they were like our advisors our trainers and um you know some of the music we played were just straight bugle marches you didn't have to use any valves for them hmm. um and it kind of opened my eyes that there was more to bugle music than just these like 20 something bugle calls that the army uses um, so that kind of got me excited about that. And, uh, you know, I, I'm a book nerd and, and, and one day I was, you know, wandering the, the, the library and, um, you know, found a, found an old army manual from about a century before and, uh, you know, just flipping, you know, it was a bugle manual and, and it was just full of all of these, you know, I mean, there was probably over a hundred bugle calls in that one. Hmm. Um, you know, with all these different commands that I never knew there were bugle calls for, right. Cause there's, there's more than what we use now. And, uh, and then it also in the back of it had this whole section, just marches, just straight musical, you know, tunes, um, quick steps. Uh, and, and I kind of really opened my eyes like, wait, these things, you know, there's more of this out there. Um, and really ever since then, I just been, uh, hunting around trying to find that stuff and tracking it down. Um, maybe about five years ago, I kind of got the idea like, well, maybe I should start taking this stuff and, and put together some kind of handbook kind of thing that you know, share it with other people. Cause it's a lot of work trying to hunt all that down. And mm -hmm. a lot of people don't even know that it's there. Um, but yeah, so that, that kind of, it's my story. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I think this yeah. is the first time on the show that we've had somebody able to talk about at West point, the field music component there specifically. Can you maybe, uh, for our listeners help distinguish at West point, what the difference is between that field music group, the Hellcats and the West point band. So, so first let me back up historically kind of what that distinction is. The field music is the musicians that would be in the actual unit for the functional purpose of, you know, providing signaling uh, is really why they're there. Um, whereas the band is strictly a musical entertainment style function. Um, the other difference being that uh, traditionally the, f the, the field musicians work for their unit commanders. Um, so, you know, kind of in the Civil War period, to take an example, pretty much every company troop battery would have two field musicians. In the infantry, it might be a, uh, a fifer and a drummer. 
in uh, the artillery, it might be two buglers in the um, cavalry, it might be two trumpeters or two buglers. Uh, and their boss is, you know, alpha company commander, you know, B company commander, C company commander. Um, and then when they need to do things all together, they would come together and you'd have the assembled field music. From, so all those field musicians from the whole regiment would get together so that you could have, you know, 12, 24 musicians um, all at once. But uh, and, and they were generally recruited out of the units themselves. Um, and we see, you know, these manuals that have advice to, you know, advice to the infantry commander on how to select uh, a good prospective bugler. Hmm. And we see these bugle manuals that, that are, you know, instructional material for fifers, drummers and buglers that really start from nothing. You know, you've been assigned to this job. Now you need to learn it. <laughs> yeah. um, whereas the bands uh, are, are a unit unto themselves at kind of the regimental or higher level. Um, and they work, all those musicians in the band work for the band commander. That is their boss. That's their chain of command. Um, so they're all an, an integral unit and, and they're generally come in and are brought into the military for their musicianship. Uh, they already know how to play their instrument. Now, granted, along the lines, I mean, the, the Army had a field music school on Governor's Island down in New York for um, almost a century. Uh, and through the Civil War period, they just couldn't produce field musicians fast enough or in enough quantity to service the, the military. So I would say relatively few <laughs> of, of the active uh, field musicians came through there uh, at that point. Um, and there, you know, there's there's a U.S. Army School of Music that 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 um, existed and still exists that that would train uh, musicians too to improve quality. Um, so that's kind of the, the the historical difference between those two um, those two aspects. And um, part of that too being that in a combat unit, you would definitely have field musicians. So they could always bring them all together to form a you know corps of drums or a drum corps. Um, you would not always have a band. Um, so that left the field musicians then, uh, you know, would, you read the manuals and there's times that they fill in on, on parade and in reviews and things where mm -hmm. it, the, the band will be, if one is available kind of statements. Gotcha. Um, now we can bring that up to the modern day. Um, that doesn't quite translate entirely because uh, the Hellcats now um, are part of the USMA band. That That is, um, you know, they, they are a section uh, that reports to, you know, the band commander as their chain of command. They're not like spread out across, I don't know, the cadet companies or something like that at, at the moment. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they are set aside. And, and I would say probably the, the, the current distinction you could make um, versus just the, the rest of the band and what they do is the, the field music group. Um, and they're, they're really the last one in the entire military left doing this. Maybe you can make an argument for the Marine Corps at, at eighth and I, their main job is not these entertainment and ceremonial functions. They sound bugle calls and perform for just daily regular training activities. Um, they are out there, you know, almost every day. Uh, I mean, they sound reveille and then retreat in, into the colors at the flagpole as just a daily function. And with the cadets, they're, they're playing at, um, the, the formations that the cadets have for, you know, breakfast, lunch, um, when the cadets are out on the drill field, uh, practicing, um, or, you know, learning to march and practicing parades. Cause we, during football season, there's, there's a big review every, 
every weekend, basically. Um, mm -hmm. The Hellcats are the ones that are out there at those training sessions providing, you know, drum beats and, 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 and bugles to facilitate that as, as a, as a military function, not, you could cut it out and everything would still happen. It's not an entertainment thing that they're there for. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's kind of the, the current where you could still see that, that distinction from the rest of the band. Gotcha. And so the, the field music group is cadets that what volunteer to. So, uh, all right. <laughs> um, so the, the Hellcats field music group are sergeants. They are army musicians. They are part of the USMA band, which is one of the premier bands in the military. Um, so they have to audition specifically for that job. That's their MOS. That's their their full time duty position is is to be a bugler or a drummer. Mm. Um, when we don't have one at the moment, uh, so back in the '90s um, and for a period of maybe close to 20 years, I guess there was a cadet field music group mm. um, as a, a cadet club. Um, that kind of mirrored them. Uh, so, so when I was there, we had a, we had a cadet group. Um, it was a cadet field music group. And then there's, there's the Hellcats, which is the use of band's field music group. So within that field music concept where you've got field musicians in every company at the, um, depending on the time period and, and, and even depending on which army we talk about the, the regimental or possibly at the battalion level, you would have uh, a bugle major, a drum major, uh, a fife major um, based on what kind of unit you were and what, what musicians you had. Um, and, and in different eras, they've kind of changed that instead of calling them the bugle major, they might be the chief bugler. <laughs> um, but they, that would be someone then who, instead of being inside the companies, they were part of the headquarters and reported, you know, to the, to the regimental commander, let's say, or really they reported the adjutant and then to the, to the commander. Um, and they would be responsible for the training of the field musicians across the unit. Mm -hmm. So uh, every day there might be a, a period set aside for all the buglers to get together because they all come from different companies. So they'd all get together uh, under the tutelage of, you know, the bugle major and the drummers would get together with the drum major, you know, um, and, and learn how to, how to do their job um, and practice together and, and, and things like that. So the, the bugle majors, drum majors, fife majors were responsible for the instruction of all the field musicians that were under them across their organization. Um, and then you have a band leader that's responsible for the band itself. And, and um, you know, that then turns into more of a chain of command relationship as well. Um, now, the term drum major we can find in different places. So that's not to say that a band didn't necessarily have a drum major in the way that marching bands now have drum majors. Mm -hmm. um, in different time periods, I think you can find that where even the band would have a drum major and kind of the first sergeant role um you know leading them out but but part of that in other time periods it targets i looked across a no, couple yeah. centuries yeah, yeah, um part of that too is that you know it goes back to the idea of you have the band and then you always have a field music and a lot of times they would be together so the drum major that is that field musician drum major would be out in front and you know, the, the field musician drummers and buglers would be formed up with the band 
um, depending on which, where we look, it might be in front of the band. It might be behind the band. Mm-hmm. Um, and we still do that now, right? That, uh, when we have, um, reviews at West Point, the, the Hellcats are formed up with the, the USMA marching band. Um, and then they're the, you know, the, the buglers are the ones sounding, you know, the, the functional calls in the middle of, of the ceremony for call, you know, attention and, a, uh, adjutants call. And there, there's a couple of bugle calls in the middle of the ceremony. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when when the band is playing music they 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 go along with them and and um perform together It's probably worth mentioning just, you know, kind of the, the what is a bugle question um, and, and what do we mean by that? Uh, kind of technic, from a technical perspective, bugles and trumpets are, are different in the sense that trumpets are uh, c- uh, cylindrical bore instruments with a constant bore all the way through until we get to kind of the bell flare in the last, you know, third of the instrument. And bugles, from a technical standpoint, would be... Um, conical instruments uh, that have a, a growing bore uh, diameter all throughout the horn. Um, nothing about that definition says anything about valves. And we have to remember mm-hmm. that prior to, you know, the 19th century, trumpets don't have valves either, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that's kind of the technical difference. And we can see that in, um, in some of the manual, uh, the U.S. Army manuals will make a very clear distinction between trumpets and bugles because we used both mm-hmm. um, for certain time period the cavalry was using field trumpets and the infantry was using bugles um and you know our common like boy scout bugle that we think of as as a bugle is the m1892 it is the m1892 field trumpet it is technically a trumpet because it is a a conical bore um and some people kind of liken that to kind of the cornet trumpet distinction and and really when you look at i think it's it's less that and more of like trumpet flugelhorn um because the the amount of how conical we're talking about in some of these Mm -hmm. instruments but um that said though in modern usage and when i kind of use it let's say everything else outside of what i just said um most modern people are thinking all right what's a a valveless you know brass instrument (laughs) that only plays on the harmonic series Mm -hmm. um and there's a lot of variety in there um because whether it's, it's cylindrical or conical doesn't matter at that point. And they get substituted back and forth in, in World War One. We can find examples of infantry units with field trumpets that were supposed to go to the cavalry, just supply issues, right? Um, so I, I kind of take it then we, we can look at what are all these, you know, natural brass instruments. And that, you know, it's one of the oldest instruments, you know, it, it, it's prehistoric um, that we can find, you know, trumpets in use, <laughs> Um and, and, you know, going all the way back to, you know, conch shell horns, right? Um, so we have a very long history. If you want to ask about the history <laughs> of the instrument, um, you know, we can we can find examples from, you know, King Touch trumpets um, that were found in, in King Tutankhamun's tomb. Um, those are some of the most famous old trumpets that are out there that were certainly used um, for some kind of government purpose it's interesting about those those king touch trumpets when you mention those to people people would think like oh they're uh 
some sort of animal bone trumpets kind of thing. But no, you show them pictures and yeah, they're straight up giant metal. Yeah, one, one's <laughs> one's brass, one's silver. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and 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 the uh, I mean, Iron Age Celts were using bronze, um, you know, horns to signal in battle. The Romans had three kinds of horns that they were using. So they the, the, the one that they called a tuba uh, was probably the, about the length and, and, and size of, of a modern trumpet. Um, it was a straight instrument. Um, they used that for signaling to small group commands and uh, for some of kind of those daily signals. Then they had um, the cornu was a, was a bit of a longer instrument, um, you know, wrapped around the body. And uh, they would use both of those together in battle, probably to get more sound. Um, and then they had the bucina, which um, was reserved for the general. So right there, we already see that because they're kind of in different keys, have a little bit different timber. They're, they're using the three instruments to designate who they're talking to, mm-hmm. um, which probably carries forward to even think about, you know, 19th century armies using trumpets for the cavalry and bugles for the infantry so that you could distinguish the two sounds on the battlefield. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, by the 1000s um, AD, we're, we're kind of seeing trumpets being reserved for royalty. And then for the military, because the royalty controls the military. So um, that kind of that period kind of sets the you know the brass apart from say the rest of music. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's separate trumpet trumpeter guilds, and remember they're playing valveless you know instruments. Why I'm bringing you know saying trumpets, but um, all the way up until the Baroque period, uh, you know that's kind of when they start being brought into art music. Um, you know, and we see the natural trumpet come in, come into the, the artistic world in Western music, at least we can, we can look differently when we look across the, the planet. Um, and, and really from, from a, you know, us perspective, um, you can go right to the very act of the continental Congress that creates the U S army in 1775 mentions that every company is supposed to have a drummer or trumpeter. So, you know, it's not like bugling gets introduced into the U S army in the you know, civil war or something like that. I mean, it goes all the way back to the revolution that we had them on both sides of the war. There's accounts of them uh, being used by both the British and, and the, the um, colonials uh, because it was already an established military uh, tool. Um, you know, it was the fastest way to communicate over distance in those time periods, mm-hmm. uh, at least the distance it could sound for. This might be jumping ahead a touch, but um, the keyed bugle comes in at, at some point. And I just just generally speaking, was the keyed bugle ever used like in a military setting for anything? Because um, it, it, to me, it kind of, you know, the addition of keys and, and the, you know, what that enables you to do on the horn as opposed to one that just kind of plays on the harmonic series kind of moves away from the more functional, uh, you know, aim of the instrument. So I didn't know if if the key bugle ever made its way into military uh, bugle calls and, and function. It, the key bugle does have ties in with the military. Um, so at the start of the 19th century, keyed brass kind of, kind of comes up. Right. And, and I think people are familiar with kind of the serpent and the cornetto. Um, but there were attempts to, okay, well, can we put keys on the bugles, right. To get more musical notes and just get more, more variety out of it. Um, and, and, notice that that's happening right before kind of valves get invented mm-hmm. um so predates them by a few decades that we come up with the keyed bugle uh and as best we can tell the keyed bugle gets introduced to 
North America uh, by Richard Willis, who um, emigrates from Ireland and brings his Keith Bugle with him and becomes the first director of the USMA band. Um, so right there, we've got, you know, kind of one of the very first, if not the first Keith Bugle player in North America is a military um, connection. Uh, and from what I can read, there, there was uh, Richard Willis at the Usman Band and then um, a gentleman by the name of Francis Johnson down in Philly, um, who, who was uh, an African-American freedman who um, was tied in with the military, I believe it was the militia band down in Philadelphia. So there's another. Mm -hmm. And the two of them were, were kind of the, the uh, first uh, proponents of, of the Keith Bugle and, and, and showing off that, that um, capability. Kind of after Willis leaves uh, the Usma band, then we have uh, there's a bugler at West Point called uh, Private Louis Bentz, hmm. and his bugle was a keyed bugle. Um, and this is kind of an interesting thing that that at that time period, uh, West Point had the Usma band, and that was the whole. They were a band, right? They reported to the band leader, uh, and then the academy employed buglers. So Bentz was not part of the band proper at that time. He was part of he worked for the commandant of cadets and he was the bugler for the U S Corps of cadets. Um, and his bugle was a key bugle. Uh, now obviously all the standard bugle calls he was playing just to, you know, sound things throughout the day, um, would, would not require the keys, but then, um, he was reportedly a, a pretty, you know, good virtuoso at, at using them to play other music. Um, so we do see the key bugle come in. Um, but then, you know, in kind of the, you know, what is it like the 1830s, the, the Stutzel valves getting introduced and then we get Perrinet valves and, and, you know, the, the, the valve system wins out over keyed um, and, and the, the keyed bugle kind of goes away and, and modern uh, what we think of as a modern trumpet and cornet kind of take its place. A side thing to kind of add to that. I know with Willis introducing it into the, the U S around 1815 and the, the key bugle being invented in Scotland in uh, 1810. Hummel and Haydn, you know, had keyed trumpets before that in like the 1790s, I think, was they uh -huh. were writing their their uh, trumpet concertos, right? The trumpet concertos were written for keyed trumpets in the 1790s, but they didn't, you know, catch on. They There were intonation issues with them and everything. So we know that those earlier versions of keyed instruments were, uh, what, art music, I guess, right? <laughs> Kind of, kind of interesting to see that that version of the instrument, you know, was art music, and then when it was, I don't know, perfected, I guess, made it, made a, made a, a conical instrument with the the keyed bugle, uh, it was able to wear both hats, you know, kind of have that military tradition and uh, play in bands and and be a little bit more artsy as well. <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned Francis Johnson because I totally forgot that he kind of did both in Philly. You know, he had some some military connections and did a lot of civilian stuff and he was a he was a rock star in <laughs> philadelphia back then everybody loved him <laughs> but yeah great well thanks that that yeah i was just wondering you know how the key bugle fit into fit into all this and obviously you know knew that it probably was a brief little uh excursion into the key bugle because it um you know didn't didn't last that long like a like the Ophiclide too, you know, kind of a, uh, came in that weird time, you know, just right before the valves and then the valves became king. So, yeah. I, I was talking to my wife yesterday. I was practicing, unfortunately, some Ophiclide yesterday <laughs> at, 
And I was telling her how it was kind of interesting how the Ophiclide has experienced this resurgence of of playability and and you know education more so than like Civil War, like over the shoulder saxhorns and stuff because people are playing Ophiclide for like Berlioz and like learning it for like a lot of this orchestral music. So people are interested in learning Ophiclide for this uh, earlier music, whereas some of these earlier valved brass instruments are like completely looked over and neglected. And meanwhile, something as awkward and, and cumbersome as an Ophiclide is getting more attention. <laughs> Buddy, you mentioned something towards the beginning of the interview about all the, the research you've been doing. We can talk about the, the book more specifically here in a second, but with the research you were doing, how there were how you found that there were marches, how you found that there were different bugle calls, and that you found that there was like music, uh, yeah, marches, like specifically written for, for bugle. How common was it that there was what we'll call music music, like actual like performance music as opposed to functional like field music? How common was it that compositions were being written for uh bugles either as solo instruments or in harmony or with bands or something um it was done <laughs> um so and it's interesting because you know like, like i said that the field music might have to fill in for you know when we don't have a band available let's say right and and or just or even probably i was reading some some things some of the manuals uh last night and and even just you know we're on the march in column you know, just like we think of, you know, the band playing music just to entertain the troops while they're going, well, the field musicians could do the same thing. Um, so, you know, pieces were written that, that only used the notes of the harmonic series to be able to do that. Um, I, I don't know that it was used so much for, you know, entertainment, like we're just straight up having a party. <laughs> um, but but in that, so it's, it's a bit functional in that it's, you know, a military purpose, but it, it, it's just, you know, to kind of keep the beat and make it more entertaining than just having a drum. Um, so that was written and, and like within the American uh, you know, manuals, you know, you'll often see, you know, a set of bugle, you know, all the bugle calls are in there and then there'll be a few of these marches in the back. And, and for a lot of the history there, it ends up being like 10 or 12, you know, and sometimes will even just be labeled like quick step number one, quick step number two, <laughs> like they got real original with this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, and later they do get given uh, names, um, but uh so, you know, it was kind of like they wrote enough to be for what they needed and then stopped. <laughs> it mm -hmm. felt like, um, although you can, you can see them out there. Uh, and, and, but then you also do find um, there are a few pieces uh, you can find around that might have like a bugle feature in just a straight, you know, band piece, let's say as, as almost a, um, you know, let's, let's just do something a little interesting and different you know, and to entertain the crowd, we'll bring this bugle out, right? Because we don't usually do that. Um, so you see that uh, occasionally. Um, but then, you know, even outside of, you know, the military, uh, you know, this almost gets to a different question, but the instrument uh, was used outside the military also. I mean, the, the, the functional purpose of needing to signal is not purely a military one. Mm -hmm. And um, the, uh, it was used by um, coachmen, uh, had coach horns, right? Which is essentially the same thing. Um, the postal services in, in various countries, um, 
used bugles so that they could signal ahead because it was so important to keep the mail going fast. They would signal ahead with the horn to let the, the next station know that they were coming to have fresh horses available or be ready to get pick up the mail um, to make things move faster. Uh, and which is why in, in a lot of European countries, the symbol for the post office is, you know, uh, the, the round bugle horn, um, like, like our uh, Civil War infantry cap badge, right? Um, yeah. You see that, um, you know, bu- uh, bicycle clubs in the, in the 19th century used bugles to help coordinate themselves. Um, and uh, so the reason I bring all that up is that in particular, the coachmen um, had their set of kind of entertaining pieces so that aside from the signals that they would use on the highways and the roads to coordinate with traffic, basically (laughs) um, they would have pieces they would play just to entertain the people that were riding in the coach. Hmm. Um, So if you had a good, you know, tootler (laughs) on, on your coach line, then you might get, you know, more business kind of concept, I guess. Hmm. Um, And the uh, I've seen accounts of postal services, um, you know, they, they had to, the, 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 the postilions had to learn how to sound the bugle for, you know, their, their calls just to keep the mail going, but then they would form these, um, you know, kind of groups that would go around and entertain the various towns, uh, with, you know, entertaining music on their instrument, um, kind of as a PR thing or, you know, to keep goodwill or just because people like music, it's just what it comes down to. Um, so yeah, we kind of see that around. Um, and then, uh, when we when we really get kind of the band movement going, right? So um, uh, kind of you know think the Sousa period, just before that and after that, um, quite a few of those marches, and this goes back to this idea of the military band is going to have the field music with it. So your instrumentation for some of that needs to include these bugles that don't have valves and can't play along with the rest of the band. Mm-hmm. Um, so you write your pieces to include a blue bugle part. Um, and some of them, the, the drums from the field music would just play the standard drum line, but we do see a couple where the field drums have a separate part from the band drums, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, but you can look and there's quite a few, even Susan marches just as examples that have separate bugle parts for them so that the bugle musicians can play along and support the band. A lot of times those kind of come in at the coda, um, you, you know, they, they don't play in the beginning and then they come in later and, and you can hear that. Um, the most famous one or the one I like the best, the Thunderer, right? And, and I think a lot of musicians, you can hear that bugle tone in there um, when you're playing the, the trumpet, because really the trumpet and the cornet part, just just follow that bugle line. Um, dun, 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 you know that, but I think a lot of musicians, just because of the key, it's for a bugle in F, um so you know not in b flat so you'd have to hold some keys down but but if you're if you're ever playing the trumpet part for that you can you can totally play it without having to use your valves to change notes um when you get that strain because it was written for bugle So Sousa did write a uh, manual for drum and bugle. Um, it's another one of these training manuals to help people learn all the calls and learn how to play and whatnot. Um, it, it is an interesting manual because um, there's errors in it, <laughs> <Not really. laughs> um, which which raises the interesting question of is 
is he capturing common practice? Um, and and the, the biggest glaring one is is it's the only it's the only manual that Prince taps with dotted eighth notes in the middle. Mm-hmm. All of the official manuals, those those that that center phrasing is straight eighths. Mm-hmm. Um, it's dotted eighths in the beginning and the end, but it's straight eighths in 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 the in the in the middle section. Um, and then uh, Sousa's manual goes and puts dotted eighths and 16th note pairs through the entire piece. Um, And it's the only place that it's printed that way, Mm. Um, which reportedly is why the Marine Corps just continues to insist on playing it wrong. And (laughs) because they use use Sousa's Sousa's way of doing it because it's Sousa. Um, Right. But but yeah, so and there's some other things in there that you kind of see where it's like the rhythms are just a little bit off, Um, Mm -hmm. but you could totally see someone taking the standard straight written version and interpreting it that way for a little musicality or to be a little more interesting. Um, so it kind of raises that question. Is he introducing that original? Is it, is it, he's capturing just common practice that people were doing? Cause a lot of this was probably taught by rote and you have some variation that comes in and you know, I mean, what's the difference? I mean, if, if you play, if you play swing and jazz music, I can write straight eighths on the page. You're going to swing them. Um, so, uh, you know, how many people were doing that sort of thing just to be a little more interesting anyway. And was it done? I knew that the Marine band played taps that way, but I didn't know that it was ever written down that way. Hmm. Um, so that, that makes sense now. I mean, you're probably right. I mean, because it's, because Sousa did that, that's probably why they, why they still do for the Marine Corps. That's the official way to do it. Yeah. Sousa's the guy. So (laughs) he can do no wrong. Right. (laughs) But, and uh, I love Susan. I'm not, I'm not. Bad. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're talking to two euphonium players here too. So we, uh, soft spot for Sousa. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I played euphonium for several years too. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. Great. And cool. then you got smart and, uh, let it go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got one right over here. Buddy, you have written a book, the Anthology of Bugle Music. Um, can you talk a little bit, maybe to to start before we dive in a little deeper? Could you uh, kind of give us a broad overview of what the book is and kind of what your goal was with it? Sure. Um, so it just started out as you know, I had all this music and and I liked it. So much of it was hard to read because it was scans of these old like some of these plates are woodcuts. You know, <laughs> they don't really you know translate well over centuries. Um, so I was digitizing them, uh, and I, you know, for myself and, and I was just kind of like, you know, other people need to know about this too. It's so hard to find. Why not share it? Cause I, there's gotta be other people weird as me. Um, and, and it kind of started as, as, as just that. And, and I, first I was thinking to just put the kind of marching tunes, the, the those quick steps and, and, you know, kind of get that out there. And somewhere along the way, I got the bug of, all right, let's go ahead and do the, the bugle call side of it too. Um, which, which just grew, um, but yeah, it, it, it started just, just that way. I, I wanted to try and 
get this stuff out there and kind of revived without people having to hunt across um, <laughs> all these different sources to find them, which is why it's just an anthology of, of all this mm -hmm. music. Yeah. You know, it's a great resource. Um, someone's yeah. got to do that kind of thing along the way <laughs> at some point. So it's, it's awesome that it exists now in that, in that form, that easy reference form for, for people. Yeah. And I, I picked up the, uh, the combined volume, the, the volume one and two edition of the book where it's in one binding. And I've been really enjoying, you know, the whole thing. I, again, congratulations, you know, first of all, on, on getting this together. I know, uh, the blood, sweat, and tears it must have taken to to get this thing published, and the research going into it beforehand, and everything. But uh, the looking at the whole book, you know, it's been great so far. But I've really enjoyed the uh, I think it's in volume one, a lot of the historical elements, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, you know, today so far. Uh, but having uh, the historical elements, you know, written down and again easily uh, findable and referenceable and stuff in there is uh, very helpful and enjoyable to read well written I, I might say oh thank you thank you yeah um and and i had originally envisioned it turning you know being something like you know like a like a handbook size like a scout handbook kind of thing um and and, and not being quite so large and just to, to have some information like here's the music and then a little bit of information to help people get get going with it um and it just kind of grew because there's so much out there uh, which is why I had to split it into two volumes. It was really just about a page count issue. And and, mm -hmm. and I took it from handbook size up to the um, A4 size, really to get more area per page. Yeah. <laughs> um, took the page cap count back down so that it, it could be um, something that could get printed. <laughs> just there's, mm -hmm. there's kind of max page counts on the printing equipment. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it, said it turned it into two volumes because uh, we wanted to be able to do a spiral bound. Um, but I went ahead and, and you could put it all together into one for the, the paperback. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, and, and the, the main portion of it, obviously, is is the music itself. Um, so there's just pages and pages of all these bugle calls and, and, and they're organized um, chronologically. Uh, and I tried to look at that and then create chapters that made made some sense with what was going on in the world. Um, I mean, it's obvious it, it's easiest to cut by centuries, you could think of, but um you know, I tried to pick some of the breakpoints inside of that based on just kind of historical military events that were going on, like like when all the revolutions kick off in, in Europe, that seemed like a good breakpoint transition for, for what was happening. And, and um, yeah, so through the bugle call sections, you know, I, I wanted to put a little bit of historical context at the front. So if mm -hmm. anyone looks at it, the, the beginning of each kind of chapter, you'll you'll see just maybe a paragraph or two, just here's what's going on in that time period with mm -hmm. um, the militaries are bugling or how, you know, how things are changing or what's going on in the world, just to give a little context. Um, and then it, at the front of each volume, there's, you know, I guess two or three chapters that are um, informational, mm -hmm. um, whether, you know, starting out with the history or, or some, the, the, the second volume uh, has some chapters about, you know, Kind of practice techniques kind of stuff and and um drill like how to hold it what are the different positions you stand in um mm -hmm. th those types of things that someone might want to know um yeah no super helpful like i said as a as a euphonium player who's leading a uh early american brass band at a university a lot of the the education that we're trying to give the students and a lot of the gigs that we take on have field music elements to it also so this is going to be a great resource and and great sheet music for us to be able to teach students about field music and 
not only the music, but how to do it, you know, actually kind of giving you uh, like a step-by-step process of what what you should be doing, which is super yeah. helpful. <laughs> I know that the research element, you know, is its whole, whole own beast. And you already talked about the difficulty of uh, the page count uh, issue. What, what was a, a challenge beyond the research and uh, maybe the page count issue that you encountered? <laughs> I'd say the book was pretty close to done for almost probably collecting closer to a year now <laughs> at least nine months um in terms of content but now there's a lot of editing that goes into that but but yeah i had to learn a lot just on on the business side and, and all these different systems and and um just how to get this thing out there and, and doing a lot of kind of research in this self-publishing world of, yeah. of how do these different things work um you know, I think for this style book, maybe for me, one of the harder things was um, I did look into publishers, uh, but it's it's not exactly, you know, the, the, the kind of thing that just a straight up sheet music publisher is going to go for mm. um, because it is more of a book. It's got some size to it. Um, there's a lot of text in it. Um, it's not it's not quite the same as just saying I have a song you know, that I want to publish, yeah, you know, definitely. um, and, uh, but yet if you go over to the nonfiction publishers, it's, you know, there's a lot of music in here. It's not, it's not mm. like you can just like, Oh, here, here's two little images that have, you know, sheet music on them and just treat them like a figure mm-hmm. or an image in a book. And, and, you know, it, it, you really need to handle the, the music as music, um, like a music publisher would. Mm. Um, I did try reaching out to a couple of publishers, um, I won't name names. I, I, I did get uh, an offer back from one of the music company publishers. Hmm. Um, I ended up deciding to stick with the self-publish concept um, just for business reasons. Hmm. Uh, and, and what was kind of in the offer, I, I it wasn't um, from talking to some other people, it wasn't outside of what's typical in music, but um, hmm. it just, I don't know if it ended up being the right decision or not now that we're at the end. Um, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it went the way it did. Um, and, and with some advice, talk to some other people. So, um, you know, decide to keep that, keep that in house. And, and nowadays with some of these modern things, I mean, you know, with, with uh, Amazon's KDP and, and, and other, you know, pre- independent presses that you can go to, um, you know, self-publishing something isn't uh, maybe as hard as it used to be. So, mm-hmm. Did you ever look into trying to get it published as like a textbook through a textbook company? Um, no, you know what? I didn't think of that. I didn't go to the textbook companies. Um, I wouldn't want to put it through a textbook publisher because I I, I don't want it to cost that much. Right, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, 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 it feels like a bit of a high cost um, just because of the bulk of it, the size of it, right? Like I mean, it, is, mm-hmm. it is a large book. Um, but I tried to keep some of the cost maybe in the range. You know, it's about, you know, the individual volumes are about the size. And I try to keep about the same cost as say in Arbenz, mm-hmm. um, yeah, right? Yeah. So I kind of use sure. that as my benchmark because I'd, I'd rather have more people getting it than it become a textbook for, you know, with, with textbook level costs that only musicologists ever look at. And yeah, yeah, I don't think there's too many programs are going to run a course on bugling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if anybody wants to do that, I'd be more than happy to work with <laughs> Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, you could almost say that this is the Arbens of bugle. bugle yeah, bugle that job. sounds good. Let's say that. <laughs> Add it to the website. Right. Yeah. If, if, if you're a bugler, you need this. It's, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. 
yeah and that, that's kind of where i'm going and and um it's it's been interesting just thinking through who's the audience for the book um because i kind of started with i wanted like a little handbook kind of thing that you could you know any bugler could could get and and i'm thinking of there's all these people that you know maybe are trumpet players and they get into playing taps um and that's really all they do with bugling and maybe they want to go a little bit further the kid who's the bugler in their boy scout uh group um and you know are, are interested in that and want to go forward with it um and it kind of got larger than that um <laughs> just um so you know that that didn't quite work out that way but from talking to people through the process though then it, it came up the idea of well there's probably those you know musicology majors and and somewhere somewhere someone's working on a dissertation and and they're going to find this it's going to be a gold mine for them yes, um yes. And, and that that one phd student will will benefit from it um <laughs> but uh you know so so that's great um so i have been taking uh some of the uh, chapters, let's say, and, and, and kind of trying to break them down into smaller books. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might see some of those out there. I've got one out, um, that I called bugling after taps. That's, that's just kind of the American bugle calls, not the civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did another one that I just put out that is, uh, just the civil war period, strictly the civil war period stuff. Um, but it's, it's all of them from infantry, cavalry, artillery, the different manuals that came out and some explanation for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to, I'll probably over time start taking all the other bits and, and try and break them out. So those things, you know, that that's more like your, your 30 page book that you pick up at the music shop and, and has a much lower price barrier that could be an mm-hmm. impulse buy, um, yeah. you know, <laughs> for, for people that maybe pick what they're, what they're really into. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it you know, I, I did not want to go the textbook route in terms of cost. Yeah, <laughs> of it doesn't course, need totally. to be. Yeah, totally um, understandable. <laughs> have you explored breaking anything out into like article form for like the trumpet journal or anything like that? Uh, I thought about it. Um, there, there's a, so I run a newsletter um, email list. Uh, it's, I try once or twice a month. I, I won't say I promise to stay on schedule, um, you know, and, and, and uh, I try and get like some little, bit of an article so so a lot of that has gone back and forth things that i wrote for that ending up in the book and and maybe taking some pieces from the book and putting them out that way but i i haven't yet but uh a couple people have mentioned it to me so i've been thinking about um you know how to put together you know to find something to put together as an article and and send it into like the historic brass journal um or, or something like that uh would be interesting um that's just kind of a a a new academic uh pursuit for me so trying to trying to sort that all out are you a member of uh hbs uh Historic oh uh, society i i will be um i guess they, they run they run their their year january to january right so i i, <laughs> I do need to send in for that yeah. um it, it was yeah. actually something I, I discovered through this this process of working on the book and i started finding some of the articles that were from them and looked into the group and and actually ended up consulting several members of of um the historic brass society uh oh. through the process um you know, uh, the, the first one being Yari Villanueva. Um, <laughs> so he's been a great help. He wrote the forward for the book mm-hmm. um, and, and, and gave me a lot of advice through the way uh, of, of trying to pull it all together and some leads on new sources and things. But, um, you know, I, I, I kind of by accident, I ended up there just different places where I'd see sources and talk to someone. And then it would turn out that they were, um, you know, part of part of the society. 
Um, and, and, and I kind of got to, got to thank the, uh, the, the, the brass band, uh, your, your podcast, even some, some of your, your people that, that, uh, I was listening to the podcast and like, Oh, they might be interesting to reach out to, I had to reach out to folks. Um, awesome. it's like, like I, I reached out to, you know, Dr. Joanna Ross Hersey. Um, you know, I, I discovered her through your podcast and, and, and reached out to her and, and she awesome. gave me some, some leads and, and some, a little bit of help on putting some of the things together for the book. mentioning um you know people giving you tips on sources and stuff is there one source that maybe you found on your own or someone pointing you to that you were like surprised to know it existed or just um you know was was one that stood out to you that you know was was either bizarre or really helpful or that you know that kind of like oh, i've been looking for this for a long time sure yeah and um you know, I, I guess one of the things some people have commented on that make this book a little different than maybe some other music books is I, I did uh, footnote and 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 bibliography like everything. Um, so and if you go through the footnotes, you'll you'll see uh, there there is a manual that that comes up quite frequently. <laughs> um, so in uh, 1848, uh, a gentleman named George Kastner uh, put together a book. Um, that uh it was french right and and the so the translation on the title is the general manual of military music for the use of the french armies um and if anyone's doing just research on band uh and can translate french um <laughs> the bulk of the book is about band information it gives a full history it's got lots of pictures how the instrumentation changed over time i mean it's really focused on band but then it has a um, a whole section of just bugle calls and he, he you know kind of the, the last time someone did what i did right so they um, um you know it, it's got the 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 french bugle calls like throughout history wow. under the different kings under the revolutionary period all that up to you know his point in time and then goes through and has a survey of all the bugle calls of all of the um other militaries uh in europe wow. um at least you know at least that he could pull together um, and I could see where if he was writing a general manual for the military, you know, because it says in the title, you know, for the French army, um, you know, knowing the other side's bugle calls would have been important. Yeah. That's right. Because so yeah. so your bugler needs to not only know their signals so that the commander can tell them, go tell the troops to go do something and they know how to signal them. But they had to understand and help interpret. Well, wait, we can hear the bugle call from the other side. What does it mean? Um yeah you know, and, and how do you interpret what the enemy is sounding? Uh, so, and I'm sure not just the buglers, but, but commanders and officers would probably need to know that too. So Kastner had pulled together um, this just whole set of them. And, and when I found that one, I mean, it really kicked open the door on, on a whole lot of uh, uh, several other countries. I mean, some of them aren't even countries anymore. They're, they're, they're regions of countries at this point, but um, yeah. you know, so that was, that was a very helpful resource to find. Yeah. Um, that, that uh, other side decoding it's like a an early form of code breaking in the military right? <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome very cool i'll have to look into that oh i guess i would have to learn french then also i'll look at it for the pictures and <laughs> yeah well um you know google google translate and uh, 
Google Lens, you know, you can put your camera on there and just translate it for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very true, very true. <laughs> have a favorite bugle call <laughs> and and with that with that bugle call uh is there uh you know a, a history to that bugle call is there an interesting kind of story to uh any of these calls or any that's a particular favorite of yours um so i'll start with this. so my, my favorite bugle tune is powerful men um so that's not a bugle call it's it, it's it's in the music section there um and and that uh that one comes out of the hellcats um that's one of their their original pieces and and probably just because i spent you know four years at west point listening to it and playing it and and it's just a really fun piece i like that one but on, on the bugle call side oh if i had to pick one um and not say <laughs> taps because that's the easy answer um you know i i think from from a story perspective probably um so, so the, the bugle call, and I don't even know what to call it, right? So, so uh, call to, if you go to the racetrack, they play call to the post, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the army's first call. Um, it's called now uh, we'd call it first call but uh the reason i kind of find it interesting is you go through all the manuals it's the, i mean the same you find the same bugle call uh or the same purpose and the title keeps changing hmm. but how the title has changed and evolved is what's interesting so we use it at the racetracks right you know for, for this call to the post thing and it's the army's first call um and it has that title because in the daily sequence it used to be the first call of the day but before they called it first call but for that reason um it was uh, assembly of the buglers or buglers call or trumpeters call if you had trumpeters um, because the original meaning for it was that that was the call that was sounded by the duty bugler. So you'd have the one bugler up at the headquarters. You'd rotate who it was each day kind of thing to sound just the single calls. Um, that was the very first call they would sound to wake up and get the field musicians to come to the, you know, their meeting spot so that they could all play the Reveille together because Reveille was sounded by the assembled field music. So before you could play Reveille to wake up the troops, you had to play a call to get all the buglers together. Hmm. Um, so the very first call of the day is this bugler's call. And the original meaning of it is, um, you know, to assemble all of the buglers uh, together into one spot. And so I just think that's kind of a, kind of a cool um, call, but then over time, it's kind of so much morphed just what its meaning is and what it, <laughs> What it's yeah. used for yeah, um, i guess that makes sense that that the buglers would all be assembled to wake up the whole the whole <laughs> campus because i was if you're a cadet sleeping how do you actively ignore the first call that would be meant for waking up the buglers and then waking up 
on the second call that's meant to wake you up kind of thing it's like <laughs> i guess the second one would be louder if there were more buglers formed but, sure I mean, that, yeah. that can be part of it and and you know and some of that changes over time because there were time periods when we sounded calls and they were passed through the camp right so it would go from left to right kind of concept you know one bugler play it the next bugler pick it up or the drummers would do the same thing and um gotcha, gotcha. you know but uh, and and even reveille has changed its meaning over time um you know i mean so the word reveille it's a french word and it literally just translates as wake up hmm. right so it starts out as a call to wake up the soldiers um, but then in, we see in the british army they have two calls there's rouse which is the one to wake up the soldiers you have reveille starts the official day um, you can look at some of the old U.S. Army manuals. Reveille is wake up. Uh, but the current use of Reveille is the start of the official duty day. So if you're not awake by the time Reveille calls, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. Right. So so first call as an alarm clock to wake you up might might be useful for everyone. Right. And then Reveille is when you got to actually like get out and show up somewhere. So Yeah. Why uh, do you think it's important for us to be studying field music as non-field musicians? At least in the in the college setting, you know, we never focus on this. It's mentioned offhand, you know. So, um, what's the what kind of value can it add to, you know, people who are studying, you know, classical stuff and 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 that kind of thing? Well, I, I think the first thing is just that it's part of our musical heritage mm -hmm. um, and it's a large part to ignore. Uh, now, we could also consider that, that you know, in those time periods, um, you know, for people to be able to get out and hear music, you know, before recorded music was available, you only had, you know, bands and orchestras. And, you know, that was not necessarily something that was super accessible to the common people, right? Which is why we have this distinction with folk music and, and things like that. But um, this is almost in that vein of a folk instrument uh, mm -hmm. because think about the uses I put out there that, you know, coachmen are using this as they travel all over and everyone needs to use stagecoaches to get places. And the, the, the postal system is using bugle calls and bugle music, which is servicing everywhere, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, you know, especially within an American context, uh, you know, through the first half of our country's history, our military system primarily was a militia based system. Um, we had a very small active duty military, but we had a very large system of, of militia uh, service um, throughout throughout the nation. I mean, it was it was an act of Congress that you had to you know, have them in, in every town and the local captain had to enroll people and and um, and people were, were members of, of these military organizations that were using drums and bugles and fifes uh, locally. So, um, you know, th these would be instruments that were spread all over and everyone had access to hear this kind of thing and probably would have been very familiar with them. And then you could look at, you know, all the major war periods when we're bringing large numbers of people into the military. Um, you know, and then dispersing them back out into the public afterwards. And this is the primary music and instruments that they're hearing and being exposed to, mm -hmm. um, you know, more often than the band. Yeah. Um, so 
you know, that, that is certainly a, a major part of our musical heritage that, that shouldn't be ignored mm-hmm. um, when it was that widespread, just, you know, because it's more interesting to look at what the aristocracy was doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, buddy, this has been a great conversation. We really thank you for your time today, um, you know, sharing sharing your research and, and your experience and everything. Um, so thank you very much. Um, if people are interested in the book, buying the book, um, you know, joining you know, your, your email list that you said you, you run or, or learning more about you uh, and, and the research you've done, where can they go? What's a good place to point people to? Sure. So probably the, the best place is the dutybugler.com, all one word, no spaces. Um, so I got a little website put together. Um, some of the information is there, but you can find, if you want to sign up for the mailing list, uh, that's there. Um, there's, there's a link right on the front page at the moment, but there, there's a, there's a store part that's got all the, the, the links and information about the books and how you can find them. Um, you can also just search on Amazon. If you search buddy cook, there's an E on the end. Um, or search anthology of bugle music, uh, they'll come up. Um, if you want the spiral bound edition, because I know a lot of people were interested in that, uh, they, they couldn't do that through Amazon because um, it's kind of non-standard. But if you go to lulu.com, um, that's where that's who's printing that and distributing it. But uh, if you go to the dutybugler.com, um, all those links and information are there. Great. Yeah, we'll have that linked on the on the show notes page uh, for everybody. It's easy to find. But yeah, the dutybugler.com. Again, thank you so much, Buddy Cook, for coming on the podcast. We appreciate taking a little bit of your Sunday morning here. We appreciate you giving us that time and and sharing your expertise and and knowledge with us on Bugle Music in the United States. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's, It's been a lot of fun, and I look forward to hearing more of your podcasts. Thank you again to Buddy Cook for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast. It was awesome getting to hear Buddy's experience with self-publishing his book, as well as his experience as a field musician at West Point. And we hope you as a listener enjoyed. And if you want to learn more, you can go to the show notes on our website and also visit uh, Buddy's website, thedutybugler.com, which will be linked in our show notes. And as we said at the top, uh, you can follow us on all social media platforms. We have a Patreon page, Teespring store, all that good stuff. So we hope to, to see you and interact with you over there. 
This episode's featured album is A Day in the Life of the West Point Hellcats. This is a 2013 album put out by the West Point Hellcats, and it comes highly recommended from Buddy Cook himself. So we'll include ways to stream this album on our show notes and information about the album over there. So go over to our show notes to listen to A Day in the Life of the West Point Hellcats. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you in the next episode.